energy. So this guy in the fantasy baseball chat is just ripping me. He's calling me names for how I handled my team. Buddy, you had 20 weeks for your own team to play better. Don't be mad at me. The passion. Mac Jones is fighting not just for his Patriots job, but he very well may be fighting for his NFL future. The opinions on all your favorite teams. For the Red Sox, it can't always be about next year. It can't always be about down the road. Where's the team that battles for now? This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We have a full show tonight, all 90 minutes. We take you up until 7 o'clock. It is a guestless show today. It's just me and you and Danny for all 90 minutes. UVM men's basketball opens up their season two hours from now at Patrick Jim against Merrimack. The UVM women are on the floor right now at Patrick Jim against Miami of Ohio. They've got a four-point lead with eight minutes to play in the second quarter. I'll be quarter. I'll be updating you on that. I am so jacked up right now for UVM basketball. It's I can't believe I haven't been watching Catamount Hoops for seven months at this point. But here we are. We're back at it today at Patrick Jim. We'll get you ready for UVM men later in the 6 o'clock hour against Merrimack. Again, we'll keep you updated on the women. Tomorrow we'll start our Catamount women's conversations with Emma Utterback. So every other week it's going to be either Aaron Deloney of the men's team or Emma Utterback of the women's team. And so we'll talk to Emma Utterback tomorrow at 6.30. You can get in 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. I'm here. You're here. Danny's here. Danny, let go. Five. Four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Six and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Rouse's Point, New York. They're also with Swanton Lumber, and they're online at sixandstuff.com. As happy as I am about UVM basketball being back, that is balanced out, that is counteracted by the disappointment that I feel at the New England Patriots. I told you several weeks ago I was done getting angry, that I was just going to be disappointed, that I was going to watch the games in a different way. i got to break my rule. I'm angry today. The Patriots got beat by a Washington Commanders team that had no business beating them. Patriots lost by three, 20 to 17. The Patriots are two and seven. The New England Patriots, who the first three years of my com- of my living in Vermont, made the Super Bowl, and I went to the Super Bowl coverage every single year. Those same New England Patriots are now two and seven. Those same New England Patriots are now the number five pick of the draft if the season ended today. Those same New England Patriots, whose Super Bowls I covered three consecutive years not that long ago, now have the most losses in the AFC. Those same New England Patriots have become an embarrassment. I told you I was not going to get angry anymore. Three weeks later, four weeks later, whatever the hell it is, I'm breaking my rule, I'm angry. 20-17 to at the hands of the Washington Commanders is unacceptable, but it is so perfectly Patriot-like for 2023, it's, it, it, it hurts. Okay, This was a game, I thought the Patriots were about to get on a streak and get hot, right? I thought they were going to have a couple victories, and no, it wouldn't have mattered in the grand scheme of things, but I thought they were going to beat Washington, they were going to beat India, they were going to beat the Giants, and heck, they were going to be 5-6, and six, and we'd be sitting here talking about some positives going into December. That is not the case. This is a bad football team. It's been a bad football team. It remains a bad football team. And it's doing things that bad football teams do. 
There is no excuse for having lost that game yesterday. Absolutely none. The Washington Commanders are trying. They are not trying in this season, right? At the trade deadline, you stayed pat. You said, we're going to roll with this team. You you have shown an organizational commitment to trying to win these games. The Washington Commanders didn't do that. Washington traded away their two best defensive players, Montez Sweat and Chase Young, former first-round, second-round picks of the draft. They traded them away. They are solely building for the future. And you lost to them at home. Sam Howell, we think, is an average quarterback at best, and you made him in some stretch look like Johnny Unitas. There was no business losing that game, and you lost it. And that's what frustrates me. Look, the loss against Dallas was more embarrassing. The loss against New Orleans was more lopsided. But yesterday's loss to me represented a low point as well because it's a game that you tried to win against a team that organizationally isn't trying anymore, and you were at home, and you yet again found a way to bungle it. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. You are just doing things that bad teams do, and you are doing it repeatedly. I mean, Danny, th- this was this was more or less more of the same, right? Like, this has become par for the course with this team. They got down early. They were down 10 nothing. They actually, in a rarity, came back and had the lead 17-10, but then couldn't close late. They didn't score in the first quarter. They didn't score in the fourth quarter. So they're a team that plays kind of good in the middle of games, and they can't start fast, and they can't close well, and ultimately they get beat. They beat themselves with mistakes repeatedly. You got missed throws by Mac Jones, like the fourth and two to Tyquan Thornton early in the game. You got the missed throw by Mac on third down to Ramondre Stevenson late in the game. You got the dropped passes by Juju Smith-Schuster at the end. You got the penalties like lining up in the neutral zone on fourth and two when you're about to get the ball back on a punt. And I know Bill Belichick says I'm not convinced he was in the neutral zone. Maybe he wasn't. But you know what? Unless you're going to block the thing, stand seven yards back for all I care. Don't even give the referee an opportunity to throw the flag for lining up in the neutral zone. They're a bad team. Apparently they're poorly coached because these things keep coming up over and over again. Completely unacceptable, completely frustrating, yet completely par for the course for this team this season. They are two and seven. I mean, this is, let me verify, I have this stat written down. They are two and seven for the first time in 23 years. They are two and seven for the first time in 23 years. It is painful to watch this team in this season. 802-585-3026. Texer says they lost to a tanking team. Good for you. You should be angry. Exactly. They lost to a team that is organizationally not trying to win. Yes, Washington, the players are trying to win, but organizationally they are not trying to win, and you lost to them anyways. We're going to unpack the Patriots here in a couple of minutes, but I I just have a stench in my in my taste about this game. I really thought that yesterday the Patriots were going to start a mini roll. I thought they were going to be five and six. And heck, I even thought they may end up, they may end up winning seven, eight games by the end of the year because the schedule was going to allow for it, but it's not the case. This team very well might finish 
with five wins. And they very well might finish with the number five pick in the draft. And you know what? Come April, we'll look at it and say, hey, that's great. What an opportunity. But for now, embarrassing and anger is all the emotions that I can muster. There, there are some good things to take away from this game. Trust me, I, I searched hard for them for unpacking the Patriots. But by and large, it's another missed opportunity and another season full of them. Another season, another missed opportunity in a season full of them. I mean, Danny, when you're watching that game, what are your emotions? Just frustrated because we can't do anything, like you said. Everything seems hard. Is that a fair way to, is that a fair yeah, way to way describe? Yeah, way too hard. Way too hard. I don't think Washington has some great defense and we're just not, not doing anything. Everything seems hard. Everything seems laborious. The Patriots are the pitcher with the 89-mile-an-hour fastball who really has to hit the corner and really you know, can't afford to miss and has to have the change-up that ducks just under the bat and has to get the help on the double play ball, everything. Whereas all these other teams, apparently, at least when they play the Patriots, all have 99 with a great slider. It is frustrating, and you should be mad about it today because I'm mad about it today. And let me talk about Mac for a second. This was not all Mac's fault, okay? He, he delivered some good balls that got dropped. He made some horrible plays as well. It's par for the course for Mac, too. There's some good, there's some bad, and that's just who he is, and that's who he's going to be. But let me talk about Sam Howell for a second. Danny, I don't think that Sam Howell is some great NFL quarterback prospect. He very well may be a starter, but he's not Patrick Mahomes, and he's not Joe Burrow. He, it felt like watching him, though, like things just come so much more naturally to him than Mac. I don't know if you got that feeling, but I was wa- I was watching the game just like you were. I was texting my buddy, my buddy who's the biggest Patriots fan I know, and he texted me all throughout the game, bless his soul. every I can't go two minutes without looking at my phone without him texting me. And I made a point to him. I said, everything looks easy for Howell. Everything looks difficult for Mac. Okay, Mac gets out of the, the the pocket, it looks clumsy because he's not very athletic. Mac goes to throw on the run, it looks robotic because he's not very fluid athletically. Mac goes to throw it deep, it, it just doesn't look right. Again, I'm not blaming Mac, this is who he is. The Patriots took him in the first round, the Patriots have started him for three years, so his lack of development or lack of getting better is on them, but this is who he is. Howell just looked like a quarterback in a way that Mac didn't. The ball came out of his hands easy. The rolling right to extend plays came easy. The the ball was thrown with a flick of the wrist. It just he just looked natural. Danny, did did you think that when you were watching Howell or am I the only one? No, it looks easier for him and other than that one horrible interception, I think the enemy puts him in good places and he yeah. has a couple good receivers, so yeah, he's he's serviceable. He does have a better offensive situation than Mac, no doubt about it, right? Dotson and Pringle played well yesterday. Terry McLaurin is great. McLaurin is excellent. Thomas played well at the tight end position. So, yes, things are better around Howell. There's no doubt about it. But, again, he just looks like an athlete in a way that Mac doesn't. He was able to extend plays. He was able to get outside the pocket. The ball is thrown easier. The ball is thrown with touch. The ball is thrown with velocity. The ball is thrown well down the field. The touchdown to Dotson from 35 out or so was a dot. Sam Howell, an average quarterback, I think. It just looks better. It just looks better.
Texters want to know about kind of what the locker room is like. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment as well. But the Patriots are 2-7. and seven. They have the, the most losses, Danny, in the AFC. And I know that they haven't had their bye yet, whereas other teams have. So, you know, they only, they've had an extra chance to get an extra loss. But still, we went through these exercises at the beginning of the year and, and in preseason. We're like, okay, who are the Patriots definitely better than? Who are they maybe better than? Well, we thought they were definitely better than Houston. They're not. CJ Stroud looks pretty good. We thought they were definitely better than Indy. They're not. Indy has four wins now or so going into this weekend against the Patriots, even with a backup quarterback at Gardner Minshew. We thought maybe they were better than Denver. Denver has less losses. We thought even the dysfunctional Raiders have less losses than the Patriots do. We thought maybe they would be better than Pittsburgh. They're not. The entire AFC North is over 500. Thought maybe they'd be better than Tennessee, who's now playing with a third-string quarterback. They still have less. They still have more losses than Tennessee. It's it has gone from bad. Even the Aaron Rodgers-less Jets are now in second place in the AFC East, and the Patriots have the most losses in the AFC. This thing has gone from bad to worse. There's questions about Belichick's future continually that we're going to get to in the 6 o'clock hour. We're going to talk more about the Albert Breer stuff from uh, from Friday about possibly being traded to the commanders. So there's a lot of stuff going on here with this team, and right now it's not very good. It is not very good. You can get in 802-585-3026. Danny, let's cue the music for unpacking the Patriots. Which Patriots popped? To the 30, to the 20, he is end zone bound, pick six, touchdown, Patriots! And which ones flopped? Jones steps up with a pocket, unloads a deep ball, and it's intercepted. That'll put the cherry on top. We unpack the Patriots now on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEVAM, FM, and WDEVRadio.com. All right, 20 to 17 lost. They're 2 and 7 right now. We're going to go through. I think we're going to go through entirely commercial free. I'm too angry to be stepping aside and taking breaks. On the good side of things, let's start there. Let's start with a positive. Mac Jones did throw some good balls, right? We we can't sit here and say that this loss is entirely his fault. He's not great. He's very average. He's certainly a part of it. He left some things to be desired. It is not all his fault, though. The touchdown pass to Hunter Henry, Danny. Let's play that. That was a very good ball in the middle of the field for 20, 25 yards out. Nothing so far today. Jones to the end zone. Hunter Henry, touchdown. Thrown in the middle of the field, over a defender's head. You know, in that kind of deep red zone area, we talk about the Pats having to be better in the red zone. That was just outside of it, but they were better in that red zone extended yesterday because of that pass. It was thrown with some touch. It was thrown with some arc. It's a good ball by Mack. It's a good catch by Henry in traffic. That's good stuff. The ball that was deep to Jalen Rager, it wasn't a perfect pass. It wasn't, it kind of looked like it floated in the wind to me, not enough velocity on it. That said, it landed right in Jalen Rager's bread basket and he dropped it. Right, like that was a, that was a, a touchdown or a ball down at the two or three or something like that. A couple of good balls thrown by Mac there, and Patriots were able to capitalize on one, weren't able to capitalize on another. And in a game in which you lose by three, you're going to need Jalen Rager to make that play, and they couldn't do it. Okay, they couldn't do it. So that was good. On the bad side of things, Mac also threw some bad balls. 
you saw the full gamut of who Mac Jones was yesterday, right? You saw some good. You saw some bad. You saw him whining at the officials. You saw his lack of mobility. You saw his lack of arm strength. You saw his ability to move you down the field late when you needed it. You saw his inability or the team's inability with him at the helm to go and close down the stretch. Okay, I mean, the fourth and two pass to Tyquan Thornton, I don't know who he was throwing that to. I mean, that's a perfect crosser where Tyquan Thornton is open in the middle of the field moving towards the uh, the left, I believe, of our – well, it's on the right. They were going right on our TV screen. Thornton was going towards the left's far sideline, as I recall. And the ball, I mean, it's just nowhere near him. It wasn't like it was just out of his hands. It wasn't even close. And that's a fourth and two that's, you know, near-ish to the 50. And all the times Belichick has punted that ball this year, we've been saying, go for it, go for it, go for it. They finally went for it, and Mack ends up throwing it to Siberia. Like, it's not even close to Tyquan Thornton. And then the footwork continues to regress. Right, we talked. We heard from Dan Orlovsky of ESPN about this a couple of weeks ago. Right, he told WEI that he talks to to Mac regularly about his footwork. Well, he better keep talking because Mac just looks lazy with the footwork. That throw to Ramondre Stevenson in the fourth quarter down the sideline was inexcusable. Right, Danny, if you, do you remember the play I'm talking about? Uh, I think I do. Yeah, it's third down. I I think they were losing twenty to seventeen at this time, but it was third down and like eight. Mac has time to throw. He basically jumps backwards and throws a fadeaway jumper to Ramondre Stevenson, who's running down the sideline. Stevenson has his man beat. Clearly he's going to catch it. Clearly he's going to get a first down, and the Pats are going to keep driving here. Instead, what happens? Mac lofts the ball up, no velocity, allows the defender back into the play, and the ball gets knocked away, and the Pats end up having to punt. I don't know if they would have scored a field goal there. I don't know if they would have scored a touchdown there. But either way, what happened was not good. They were forced to punt. Mac Jones, bad balls there, bad footwork, lazy footwork. And we've seen him falling back a lot now on his back foot. And I don't know if he's scared of pressure, if he's just trying to get the ball out quicker or what. But for a guy in Mac Jones who we were told was process-oriented, was detail-oriented, I would have thought that being meticulous about his footwork would have been something that he is. Maybe he was in the past. He's not right now. On the good side of things, Danny, on Friday, we asked what we wanted to see, right? We said we wanted more Pop Douglas, and we said we wanted more contribution from Kyle Duggar. We got it yesterday. Duggar had a pick in the end zone. Now, this was maybe the worst decision I've ever seen a quarterback make on this throw by Sam Howell. But, Danny, Duggar did get the pick in the end zone right before the half that halted a Washington potential scoring drive. They have all three of their timeouts. Howell rolling right, looking. Now throws, it's intercepted in the end zone by Kyle Duggar. Duggar takes it out. Wow. This is a guy, Duggar, who maybe the Patriots will re-sign, right? They didn't trade him. Could have gotten an asset for him. If you're not going to trade him, we've called on you to sign him. Right, young players should be an exciting building block of your defense. If that's going to be the case, we want to see more contribution. Picking a sack last week against Miami, picking the end zone this week. That's what big players do. Yes, it's a bad mistake by Howell, but Duggar still makes the play. It's still Johnny on the spot. It's still right place at the right time, and the Pats end up halting a scoring drive potentially before the end of the half. Right, you were up 14 to 10 in that spot. Washington could have very easily gone into the half up 17-14. Instead, your defense steps up makes a big play, and with your limited offense, your defense is going to have to step up and make some big plays. Duggar did that. 
Danny, play that clip one more time. They have all three of their timeouts. Howell rolling right, looking. Now throws. It's intercepted in the end zone by Kyle Duggar. Duggar takes it out. Wow. On the bad side of things, what are you doing running the ball out? This is one of my biggest pet peeves. If you're not guaranteeing me that you're going to be able to get past the 25-yard line, do not run the ball out. Here's what happened, right? Duggar picks the ball in the end zone with, like, 18 seconds left or something. He then runs around the end zone and ends up at the 12. And you know what he did in that time? He lost 13 yards from where they would have been if he had just knelt in the end zone, and they lost, like, 8 to 9 seconds. Now, I have no idea if with, with – if with you know, 15, 17 seconds to play, the Patriots are going to try to do anything from the 25-yard line. They very well may just kneel on it. But I know for a fact that when you only get to the 12 with nine seconds left, you're going to kneel on it. This frustrates me to no end. DBs, linebackers, whoever it is gets the pick, they bring the ball out, what? Looking for glory, trying to pad their stats, hoping for a miracle, emotional high, I don't know. But the smart football play, kneel, save yourself 8 to 10 seconds, and get yourself 10 to 12 more yards back and take it at the 25. It was absurd that Duggar did that. I absolutely, It's one of my biggest pet peeves. If you can't bring the ball out past the 25, don't bring the ball out. I, I feel the same way on kickoffs, and I feel the same way on interceptions in the end zone. It's absolutely absurd. All right, on the good side of things again, Ramondre Stevenson. Good to see you back looking like you used to look, right? Look, he only had 87 yards. 64 of them came on this one, Danny. From the 35, Stevenson, first down and more. Ramondre Stevenson still going. Chased by Pearl Stevenson into the end zone. Stevenson, 64 yards to the house. Remember back to his first ever preseason game, right? We're calling him Ramondre August or August Ramondre or Mr. Preseason or whatever. That's how he looked. He had an explosive burst. And, I, yeah, I understand when you go 64 yards, there's a good chance there's a missed assignment somewhere on defense or a missed tackle. I don't care. We haven't seen that kind of burst from from Ramondre Stevenson in a while. Okay, 64 yards. Now, I'm, I'm disappointed that he only had, you know, 23 yards on another eight carries beyond that. They still didn't really run the ball well overall. They barely were able to run the ball. Only ran it like 17 times for the game between Stevenson, Zeke, and Pop Douglas on a jet sweep. But the 64-yard play by Ramondre Stevenson, that was a nice and welcome sight to see. We have not seen that for a while. On the bad, Danny, I mean, just all-encompassing, all-encompassing special teams. Patriot special teams were bad last year. Patriot special teams are bad this year. I mean, Chad Ryland, I give him credit, right? He's started, like, he's kicked it well the last several games. But, I mean, this is just a horrific special teams unit. It was horrific yesterday. You had the Mac Jones, or the uh, Mac Wilson, excuse me, offsides on the punt, which, you know, kept it so you couldn't get the ball earlier. I mean, that's frustrating as all hell. I'm trying to find an exact list of all things the Patriots did well on special teams. Um, oh, so they had a penalty, the holding penalty on that same play, a bad punt return by Pop Douglas, 
and a big kick return allowed. Yeah, just a horrible special teams performance. Joe Judge, by staying in the organization, was supposed to be able to help the special teams unit. It doesn't appear to be the case. On the good side of things, we called for more Pop Douglas. They got Pop Douglas involved. He had five yard, or five receptions. He did carry a ball. He was involved in punt returns. He had 50-plus yards. He's your best offensive player right now, your most exciting weapon. Get the ball in his hands as much as possible. On the bad side of things, Danny, I know it's going to get forgotten because they were bailed out by the Kyle Duggar interception, but they really allowed a third and 23 run from Sam Howell in the second quarter. Like, crowds. Go ahead, play it. Play it. Getting into it. Third down and 23 following the sack. Howell across midfield. Howell stays on his feet and is close to a commander's first down. Looks oh, like did he, he picked get it up. I think he got it. Wow. Like it was third and 23. One week after you allowed a million yards on third and long, you allowed a million yards on third and long. I saw the commanders convert third and 10, third and 7. Third and 23 also gets converted. Before the half, again, Duggar bails you out with the pick. But if you could stop him on third and 23, maybe you get the ball back quicker and you got a chance to go down and get some points before the half and go into the half up 17-10 or up 21-10 to and you're feeling a lot different. Instead, Sam Howell, who's not known as a mobile quarterback, although we can move a little bit, goes for 23-plus yards and you miss out on another opportunity to get the ball back. Absolutely disgraceful. Um there is, there, there appears to be something going on in the Patriots locker room. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. The media doesn't know what it is. But Jack Jones and J.C. Jackson did not play the first quarter of this game. Why? J.C. Jackson didn't speak to the media after the game. Why? Because he's frustrated. Why is he frustrated? Because he's not playing. Why is he not playing? We don't know. So something's going on in that locker room. Okay, Jack Jones... One of your better defensive players last year, he's out for the first quarter. J.C. Jackson, guy you brought back to help solve your quarterback woes, he's out for the first quarter. And then, so this is, Danny, I will play this because it's it's going to take me a minute here. But um, I got to find it. But anyways, Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston was saying, like, this is systematic of, I think this is it. Like, this whole thing is systematic of a bigger problem. You're not going to put the paddles to the chest of the... No, that's not it. Wrong one. Nonetheless, I promise you, things are not good in the locker room. Okay? Things are not good in the locker room. You, and then, Danny, did you see Jack Jones's like tweet? Did you follow this story? I didn't see this one. You did or did not? Did not. So, Jack Jones on Twitter. Remember Jack Jones in the summer was arrested for allegedly carrying the two guns onto the plane in Boston? Yep. Someone t- posted to him on Twitter, like, hey, Jack Jones... You should have just pleaded guilty at this point. And Jack Jones liked it. As in, like, yes, me pleading guilty and dealing with the legal ramifications of that would be a better alternative to what I'm going through now. That's where the state of the Patriots are at right now, where a guy is liking a tweet saying he should have pleaded guilty to a felony rather than be in the situation that he's in. Like, that would be a better thing than playing for the Patriots right now as presently constructed. What? Next comes I Got Hacked. I mean, oh, it's already deleted. We'll be on the damage control process here eventually for that. But that's where things are at for the Pats. Okay? That's where things are at for the Pats. It's ugly. Okay? And when you're winning, a lot of this stuff gets swept under the rug, right? Every team has a little bit of dysfunction. When you're winning, it all goes away. When you're losing, it bubbles to the surface. J.C. Jackson's mad. Jack Jones is mad. Jack Jones on Twitter. People are now starting to talk a little bit. 
People are in the locker room. Something's happening. Don't know. This is what this is what happens to bad football teams. This is what happens to bad football teams. My last good thing was Juju Smith-Schuster at least took accountability for his mistake at the end of the game. That was a drop. Like, it was a, a clear drop, right? Clear drop in his hands. Ball gets picked. You can all blame Mac all you want for that. That one wasn't Mac's fault. But Juju, after the game, Danny, he actually took responsibility for it. Uh, I put that stuff on I me. Mean, it's all on me. Um, he, he put the ball in a good position. Uh, I just got to catch, secure it. And, uh, you know, now I'm in field you know, uh, range. And obviously I didn't do that. I mean, credit to Juju for being a pro, right? Devontae Parker screws up against uh, Vegas, drops a pass that could have helped him win the game. He takes no accountability for it. Juju takes accountability. I give you credit when you're a pro, right? We can all complain about Juju's contract and his lack of production and his stats. That was a guy being a pro. Credit to him for that. He stood at the microphone. He answered the questions. He took responsibility. Patriots are 2-7. and A lot of you are texting in here. On the Brady Farkas Show. Let's talk about, I'll answer some of your texts. We'll tell you what's going on with UVM basketball, and we'll get to Belichick and uh, his future as well. Albert Breer had a very interesting report yesterday, continuing on what we talked about on Friday. We'll be right back here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, and the free WDEV radio app. Yep, some of you on the text line are just as mad as I am. Good. We're all going to get through the 6 p.m. hour together. CBS News is next, right here on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back to the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We're going to get back to the Patriots here in a second, but Will in Plattsburgh uh, says too many penalties, lack of talent on offense. If Mac isn't a mobile quarterback, he better be an accountable one, and he is not. And uh, Texter says, uh, what about firing Belichick? The Red Sox just moved on from high and bloom. That's what we're going to get to in a second. I do want to take, take you through what's happening right now at Patrick Jim. Opening night for UVM women's basketball. UVM men are going to open up tonight as well. We're going to get you ready for uh, the Catamount men here at the bottom of the hour as they get ready for Merrimack. But the UVM women right now are taking on Miami of Ohio, and they're winning this game 30-25 to with 7.45 left in the third quarter. I don't pretend to know anything about Miami of Ohio women's basketball, but I can tell you Miami of Ohio is in the MAC, the Mid-American Conference. That is a far better conference athletically than the America East. So if UVM can win this game, I think that would be a very big win for them, right? To be in a program from the MAC, I think that would signify something excellent for Elisa Kresge's program. They're now up 7, 32 to 25. Again, I'm watching this game on mute. I'm, I got one eye to it here as we're doing the show, so I, I can't tell you definitively everything going on in the box score. But what do I really like? I can tell Angela Maddock is an excellent point guard. This team, I told you, their biggest concern is who replaces Cat Gilwey. Angela Maddock looks like a player who's very capable of doing that. Cat Gilwey is an awesome point guard. Maddock looks excellent. She's a sophomore. She did appear in a couple of games last year. I think she played in 20 games last season, so she did play, but clearly has taken a huge step in this offseason. She has, she looks very, very in control of things and looks offensively minded as well. Emma Utterback is playing well also, and we will talk to Emma uh, on the show tomorrow at about 6.30. So Catamounts right now, 32-27 to 27 with six and a half minutes to play in the third quarter, that going on, that game going on at Patrick Jim. And again, we'll get you ready for the men's game coming up at the bottom of the hour.
All right, I want to transition over from the UVM women's basketball team and that game going on at Patrick Jim. I want to get back into the Patriots, and it was an ugly loss yesterday, 20-17 to against a commander's team that, you know, I wouldn't say they're tanking, but they certainly aren't organizationally going for it this year. And they came into your ball, they came into your stadium and won anyways. And that really, really bothers me. And it's really disappointing and it's really, really frustrating. Let's talk about the situation with Bill Belichick, right? The team is two and seven. They also are going nowhere this year. They're going to win a couple of more games, right? I still believe that they could still beat Indy next week. They could still beat the Giants, especially without Daniel Jones. I, I think that the Patriots are, are destined to win a handful of more games this year, but they are going nowhere. So let's talk about the Bill Belichick situation. I would not fire him in season, right? Does not mean... I wouldn't get rid of him in the offseason. We're going to talk more about the potential trading of Belichick here like we did on Friday in a couple of minutes. I am on record as saying I would trade him this offseason. It seems like the best way to kind of make everybody happy. He wants to coach. You don't want the indecency of firing him, period, because of what he's done. Seems like the best solution for all parties to me. That said, I would not fire him right now. I would not fire him right now. My question would be this. What good would it really do? What good would it really do? Michael Holly of NBC Sports Boston says he also wouldn't fire Bill Belichick, and he also has the same question. I wouldn't do it. No. No, I just, I just couldn't do it. Can't uh, stomach it. I, I, no, I just, I think it's, um, I think it's unnecessary. I don't know what you really gain by, by firing Bill Belichick in, in season. You know what? I, honestly, I think he is, Coaching this team to its potential, because I don't like the I don't yeah. like the team. I, but I, I never liked their talent at the beginning of the season. So maybe Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick thought they had an 11-10 win team. I thought they had at best a six or seven win team. The only thing you get out of firing your coach early is to get a jump on the rest of the coaching candidates, and or to evaluate your interim coach who you've promoted from within, right? That's all you get out of this. But I think the Patriots already know what they're doing. I think the Patriots are going to give the job, if they get rid of Belichick, to Gerard Mayo. I think they already know that. And therefore, I, I don't think that firing Belichick gives you the benefits of what I just outlined, right? Right? This isn't like, okay, if we fire Belichick today, now we can reach out to the hot college coach, right? Now we can reach out to Lincoln Riley at USC. Now we can reach out to Jim Harbaugh. This isn't that. This isn't like, okay, we can fire Bill Belichick now so we can go and pull some coach who's not coaching right now and try to get him in here earlier than everybody else can. This isn't that. I think you already know what you're doing. It seems to me like not a foregone conclusion, but pretty writing on the wall that Gerard Mayo is the next guy up in Foxborough. They put out a statement when they gave him an extension this year saying how much they loved him. When would the Patriots ever do that about an assistant? Right? They put out a statement saying how much they value him, how much he's learning, and how much kind of they love him in the organization. They announced publicly that they gave him an extension. They didn't want him to interview for other head coaching jobs. It seems like they are trying to keep him to themselves. So this isn't like you fire Belichick today and all of a sudden tomorrow you're working the phone getting a jump on the five other teams that are going to have job openings by the end of the year. Also, if you fire him now, 
You could give the job to Mayo just now, but I don't think that does a lot of good either. Like what? Mayo comes in, takes over this team, finishes up, you know, two and whatever, and then everybody's looking sideways at him going, oh, man, is he really that good? Now everyone's looking weird at you going into next season? Nuh-uh. The best thing for Mayo, if you are going to get rid of Belichick in the offseason, let Gerard Mayo start from scratch, right? Let him start with a clean slate. Because if Gerard Mayo takes over this team and the Patriots finish the year 4-13 and and Mayo ends up winning one game or no games, you don't want people looking at him going, man, they gave him the job and he went 0-6? Or they gave him the job and went 1-7? and that, that's not good for anybody. It's not good for the Patriots to have talk radio talking about it. It's not good for Mayo to have talk radio talking about it. And if you already trust him and you already think of you already think highly enough of him, then he doesn't need to prove himself on the interim basis. So getting rid of Bill Belichick now doesn't make any sense in that regard. And then there is the emotional part of it as well. Bill Belichick has done a lot for your organization. He doesn't deserve a lifetime contract. It's not a lifetime achievement award being the head coach of the New England Patriots. He also deserves the chance to go out here over the course of a full season. He does. You want to fire him in the offseason? Fine. A lot of legendary coaches have been fired. You want to trade him in the offseason? That's fine too. But firing him now when there's no tangible benefit to you seems like a callous thing to do and it seems not necessary and say what you want about the Patriots where there are right now but Robert Kraft has always seemed to value a level of decorum and class and firing Bill Belichick mid-season doesn't seem like it would fall in line with that there's no if there was a tangible benefit to it then I'd have the discussion with you but I don't see that because I don't think they're interviewing other candidates I think they are going to bring in Gerard Mayo and that is all That is what it feels like. Is that the right decision? Don't know. Right? Is that the right decision? I don't know. I've talked a lot about getting diversity of thought. Mayo is just a Belichick disciple. Is he going to be as good as Belichick? Is he going to be the same as Belichick? I don't know. But it seems like that's what they're doing. And if that's what their plan is, then there's no need to fire Belichick now because there's no need to go get a jump on the market because the market is already there. Their market is already there. So that's where I'm at with that. I would not fire Belichick today. Tom Kern of NBC Sports Boston said the same thing. I wouldn't fire him today. I wouldn't fire him in season. You're not going to put the paddles to the chest of the New England Patriots in 2023 and suddenly get this great turnaround that sends you into next season with so much enthusiasm because ding-dong Bill Belichick's no longer our head coach. You ride it out. You signed up for it. You've kept an extension in the offseason or a new contract that was also lucrative. But to me, that contract is, you know, as sources have told me, if he doesn't perform, the results will be the results for Bill Belichick. And I think that it's heading that way. But I would not, certainly not fire him during the season because of all the reasons that Mike said. Yeah, all the reasons that Holly said that I just played for you a little while ago and all the reasons that I said. I mean, it's just, it's not necessary right now. It is not necessary right now. So um, it's ugly. It's disappointing. It's frustrating. It's maddening. It's all of those things. But the right thing to do is let Bill Belichick stick it out for the rest of the year. He he has earned that as far as I'm concerned. He has not earned a lifetime contract. He does not earn, you know, he he's not impervious to being criticized. But at two and seven, look, if this team was 
four and five, and you thought that one more win and, and, and we could turn the nozzle here and kind of rally everywhere, then it might be worth it. Two and seven, it's not. Okay, the season is lost at this point. Now you should be willing to do what's right by your longtime coach, and then in the offseason you do what's right for your organization. I think that is kind of the bumper sticker quote that I want to take from this. Right now, you're doing what's right for Belichick because of what he's done for you. In the offseason, you're doing what's right for you. And that's fair too. So I would I would keep Belichick now, despite how ugly it looks. I really hope the Patriots win in Germany because the last thing I think Robert Kraft wants is to be embarrassed on an international level. We might look at it and say, okay, it's no big deal if they lose in Germany, and ah, it's just a, it's a you know a weird one-off game. Robert Kraft is looking, the NFL is looking to create football fans for life, and Robert Kraft is looking to create Patriots fans for life, but he's looking to create Patriots fans overseas because Patriots fans will buy NFL Red Zone, and that will pay him, and Patriots fans will buy T-shirts and hats and whatever, and Patriots fans will go to a game the next time the Pats are there. The last thing he wants is an is an embarrassment on an international level. You may not think it's that big a deal, but if they go to if they go to Germany and get beat twenty to nothing or thirty to ten or whatever by a bad Colts team, that is going to hurt him. If they go to Germany and win thirty to ten, then that ultimately is going to look good for Robert Kraft and look good for his brand. It's not the world's biggest game in Germany. It's not the Super Bowl, but it is a showcase of the sport. It is a showcase of the logo. It is a showcase of the brand, and Robert Kraft wants that showcase to go well. So I really hope for Bill Belichick's sake that the Patriots win this game. Again, I wouldn't fire him even if they lose it, but I hope for him they win it because the drumbeat will get louder and will continue to get louder. This season is lost, but... It could continue to get worse if you lose across the pond over to the Colts. And that's a Colts team that, uh, look, I think they play hard, but they're not great, right? They're not great. They've got Jonathan Taylor. They've got Pittman at wide receiver. They've got some stuff there, but they're missing their future franchise quarterback. And as fun as Gardner Minshew is, it's still a game you should be able to win. All right, let's go a little bit back to what we talked about on Friday because there's some, some new information out here, right? So... We talked on Friday about the idea of Bill Belichick being traded potentially to the Washington Commanders in the offseason. And I mentioned the Commanders would be interesting, but I would rather have the Chargers job, frankly. Like, that's the job that I would want if I were Bill Belichick. Albert Breer, the Monday morning quarterback, added some further light yesterday on the Patriots pregame show as to why the Commanders job would appeal to Belichick. And this is something that I've heard about for over a year now um, and really more intensely over the last month. And I don't think that this is just a one-way thing. Like the commanders might want to bring uh, Bill Belichick in. It might be that Bill Belichick looks at the commanders and says that'd be an appealing situation for me too. There are a few reasons why this would make sense. One, there's a widespread per- perception in that New England building that he still wants to coach, whether it's in Foxborough or somewhere else. Two, it's a historic franchise. Three, it's home for him. Remember, he's from Annapolis, about 45 minutes from D.C., And then four, and this is the one that you may not know about, there is a connection there where if a deal needed to be worked out, it could be worked out. 
Josh Harris, Washington's new owner, went to Harvard Business School with Jonathan Kraft. And so there's a relationship between the two families. The Krafts are big champions of Harris getting the commanders. I had forgotten about the home thing. I had forgotten about the home connection. Now, I, I guess I think this is more of a philosophical question for each person. Like, when does home stop being home? Like, how far gone from a place do you have to be for you to no longer consider it home? Or do you always consider it home? I mean, Bill Belichick's been in New England now for 24 years or something, 23 years. He was in New York before that for a bunch of years. He's been, you know, he's coached in Detroit. He's coached in Indy. So I don't know when the last time he was really in Maryland was. But if he considers that home still, then maybe he does want to go back. And maybe he'd be okay going back. Again, I believe a lot, I believe everything else Breer said, and I mentioned most of that on Friday's show. I did not mention the home thing. That is something to think about, right? I look at the commander's job, and I think it's an iffy job football-wise, right? Sam Howell is an average quarterback. I think he played very well in spots yesterday, but he's an average NFL quarterback. The team has a stench about it from the last two decades worth of prior ownership it's a very tough division when you look at the eagles who don't appear to be going anywhere in dallas there are things i think to not like about the commander's job but one it might be available so that is automatically appealing two the historic franchise i think absolutely plays into this right i think bill belichick would consider it to mean more to coach the Packers, the Bears, the Cowboys, Washington, somebody like that, kind of like the you know the old NHL, like original six type team. I think that absolutely would mean more to Belichick. The home thing is huge, and I did not think of that originally when we talked about this on Friday. And then the whole thing about, you know, Kraft and Harris going to Harvard Business School together. I think it matters. I don't know how much it matters, right? Like at the end of the day, trades can be made with anybody, but if you have a prior relationship among ownership groups, I I think it probably does go, it it works to your favor, right? It certainly doesn't hurt you. How much does it help? I don't know, but it certainly doesn't hurt you. Breer also talked about the kind of compensation the Patriots could get for Belichick. I think it's hard. I mean, like you look at like what the Broncos um, had to give up to get Sean Payton from New Orleans last year. It was a low first round pick. So it was a first rounder, but it was the 29th overall. That was Miami's pick that they got in the Bradley Chubb trade and then a second rounder this year. So you'd think maybe it'd be somewhere around that, somewhere in that range from a value standpoint. I mean, that that that's insane to me, right? Like that is actually an insane deal to me. Now, here's what I don't know. Right, you talk about Sean Payton garnering a low first round pick. I mean, Washington's gonna be an average team. They're gonna be picking somewhere between ten and fifteen, probably, right? Between eight and fifteen. I do not think they're giving up that high of a draft pick for Bill Belichick. So are you able to get a first round pick next year? Are you able to get a second round pick this year and a fourth? I don't know what it would be, but that is value that I'd want if I were the Patriots. And look, they didn't trade any of their players at the deadline. So if they have their own high first-round pick, plus they go and get another second or a fourth or a first next year, we talk about repl- you know getting talent on this roster. Well, trades are a way to do it. And if Bill Belichick is you know a a thing that an asset that can get you better players, then that's something I would obviously strongly consider. I I can, I'm continue to think that trading Bill Belichick is the 
best way to make everybody happy. Bill Belichick doesn't get fired. Bill Belichick gets to continue to coach. Bill Belichick doesn't have to go through an interview process. Bill Belichick gets the um, opportunity to, you know, go coach a historic franchise in this particular case, potentially. He gets to be somewhere where he's wanted, and you didn't have to do the indecency of firing him, and you ultimately go get assets for him as well. I mean, that to me seems like the best of both worlds. If you don't want him here, trading him is the way to do it, right? I wouldn't go and fire him, or or, or I wouldn't want to fire him. Trading him seems like the way to help everybody out and get something. So, I, I mean, I absolutely think that that is the way to do it potentially see what happens. It's the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com. We'll continue our conversation on the Patriots. Remember UVM men's basketball is getting ready to take on uh, Merrimack coming up uh, seven 30 or so. So, you know, an hour ish away from the uh, opening tip off there. And, uh, Got to get to a little Celtics note as well. Congratulations in order for Jason Tatum. We'll talk about all of it next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Continuing our conversation. I'm going to get to this Tatum thing, too, in a minute. I know Danny's pumped about that. But continuing our conversation on the Patriots, I'm talking about maybe trading Bill Belichick, and I'm talking about going to get draft picks and stock the cupboard again and replenish the assets and go and get more talent. Ultimately, it all plays into what Phil Perry had to say after the game yesterday, right? I'm watching NBC Sports Boston. I'm watching Post Game Live, and there's Phil with a very sobering reminder of why the Patriots might look to trade Belichick in the future because they need draft picks and they need better players. Listen to this from Phil. This one was very, very sobering. In one-score games, can I just go through a real quick list for you in terms of the guys that they're asking to make plays for them late in the game in their one-score losses so far this year. It's Juju Smith-Schuster at the end of the game. Drop turns into a pick. Game over here today against Washington. A couple weeks ago, it's Devontae Parker down the sideline in Vegas. Clangs off his hands. Could have been a game-changing kind of completion. It's against the Dolphins. It's Cole Strange ending up with the ball in his hands after a throw to Mike Kosicki, who's a nice player, but he's not a go-to player, and he's not a playmaker as they're trying to drive the field and beat the Dolphins. And then in week one, it's Kayshawn Booty, who somehow is on the field because Devontae Parker can't play. He's a six-round rookie, can't get his foot inbounds because he still thinks he's at LSU. They don't have enough. I mean, that is sobering, right? We, we could talk a lot about Mac, and you know where I stand. We could talk a lot about Mac and how it's his fault and how he's not very good. We talked about some of the sloppiness with his footwork in the first hour, et cetera, and that's all true. But at the end of the day, the players around him also are not good enough. I've used this analogy a bunch, and I will continue to use it. If you have a B-minus, a C quarterback, you better have A's around him. The Patriots have a B-minus, C quarterback, and they have C's around him. In a lot of cases, they got a couple of B's. They got no A's, right? This is an all-encompassing problem. The quarterback is not good enough to elevate the players around him. The the, The players around the quarterback are not good enough to elevate his play. And as a result, you get this. You get a bunch of everything seems difficult. You get a bunch of close but no cigar. And you get a bunch of... Oh, man, if we just had a little bit more of this, maybe the result would be different. You're relying on six-round draft picks in week one in Kayshawn Booty. You're talking about a a tight end 
in Mike Kosicki that your division rival was willing to trade in that other loss against the Dolphins in week two. You're talking about Devontae Parker, who again was traded to you from your division rival Dolphins. They were willing to move on from him and let you have him in the division. They clearly weren't afraid of him. They didn't want him. They shipped him out. And this is a guy who you are counting on. And Juju is a guy who has more clout than that. He has been a better player than that in his career. He is a Super Bowl champion. That is all true. But he is a guy who does not deserve to be a number one. And he's a guy you have had to pay like your number one and who you've had to rely on. I'm confident that Jacoby Myers makes the play yesterday that Juju didn't. I am. Tough play, sliding play across the middle. I get it. Difficult. In traffic. I'm confident Jacoby Myers makes it. I'm confident that Terry McLaurin on the other side makes that play. Juju Smith-Schuster didn't. These are the guys that you're relying on. You're relying on 30-year-old Ezekiel Elliott, who actually, again, continues to play better than I thought, even in short doses, right? He had six carries, I think, for 17 yards yesterday. Plays better, though, than I thought. It's just, it's all frustrating, and there's not enough talent on this roster to overcome, right? There's there's deficiencies at quarterback. The other guys can't help. There's deficiencies at the other positions. The quarterback can't help. And, and the defense is beat to hell by injury. And as a result, you're in a lot of games, but you can't win a lot of games. So I, I got a transition here from the Patriots a bit. I'm going to continue to be angry, but I'm going to transition off the Patriots here, hopefully for the rest of the show. Right, I want to talk about UVM. I want to talk about a Red Sox note that's important for you to know. So I, I want to get to other things here for the first time in the show. But uh, I will continue to be angry under the surface. I do have to mention this. Uh, Jason Tatum, congratulations to you. Youngest player ever in Celtics history to get to 10,000 points. Youngest player in Celtics history to get to 10,000 points. Did it in a win over the Nets over the weekend. Seas are the only unbeaten team in the NBA entering play tonight. They're going to take on Minnesota. That game's going to be an eight. Good chance for maybe for me to get two screens going with UVM on one and the Celtics on the other. Minnesota is a team with, with young, good players, right? Anthony Edwards, Rudy Gobert, who's now older, but um, you know certainly an interesting team, Carl Anthony Towns. So we'll see how this game goes tonight. Seas have their unbeaten record on the line here, but Tatum, 10 thousand career points heard good stuff from Joe Missoula about him from Drew Holiday about him I thought one of the most funny things was Jason Tatum's story here kind of about his career arc I thought this was I thought this was very very candid very very honest man I was ignorant when I got drafted um like what I thought I knew uh, you know first of all I didn't even want to come because I didn't think I was going to play you know I, they had Gordon and JB and Isaiah Thompson smart and you know I I didn't think I was good enough to be you know on that team um, so it didn't even cross my mind how to close a game out how to finish I was just more concerned about getting in the game and starting I think that was very very candid and it goes along I mean just for one I appreciate the honesty but two it just goes along with what I've said forever right like different like guys are motivated by different things and it oftentimes depends on where you're at in career in your career Jason Tatum didn't say at the beginning there, I was pumped to go to Boston because I thought we could win a championship. He's like, I didn't want to go there because I didn't think I was going to play. So, like, there's always this notion for people that, oh, the guy should want to win a championship. Not everybody's primary goal is to win a title. Guys want to establish themselves. And when they establish themselves, they can get paid. 
and when they've get gotten paid, then they can move on to the championship goal a lot of times. And that appears to be what's happened with Tatum. I don't begrudge him for that. I just think that's honest. I think that's human nature. I think that's how a lot of young athletes work. Everybody's like, oh, he's not a winner. He's got a, he doesn't want to win a championship. Not everybody does. And certainly not everybody does at the beginning. Because Jason Tatum walked into a contender and he wasn't happy about it. He's like, I wanted to go, I wanted to play. I wanted to be where I could play. And I just think, yeah, that goes along with what I've said. Guys want to establish themselves when they're young. Tatum did that. All-star. Tatum did that. Big contract. Now, he's the leader of the team. Now you can go to the real team goals. It's the Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. All right, UVM men's basketball getting ready for Merrimack. I'm going to tell you a key factor in tonight's game. I'm going to give you my official prediction, what you should be watching for. Catamounts and Merrimack talk. The preview, opening night at Patrick Jim. Coming up next on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, and always streaming on the free WDEV radio app. Yeah. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on this Monday, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Final segment, Jazz with George Thomas is coming up just a couple minutes now uh, from now. I am, I am so pumped. We talked about UVM women's basketball earlier in the show against Miami of Ohio and that game going on at Patrick Jim right now. We are less than an hour away from the UVM men opening up their season at Patrick Jim. First off, I love this idea where we have the women and the men opening up on the same night in the same building, right? It feels very, very high schoolish to have, you know, one game following another right after, right away. Usually it's, you know, a JV game and a varsity game. Rarely do you get like both varsity teams, right? The boys team and the girls team. So it's not perfectly high school, but it feels high schoolish to have two games going on in the same night. That feels very, very cool to me. I'm a huge fan of that. I'm going to talk to Emma Otterback about it tomorrow when she joins the show, right? So every Tuesday, we're going to get a Catamount Hoops player on, and it's either AD on the men's side or Emma on the women's side, and Emma Otterback is going to be with us tomorrow at uh, about 6.30. So I do love this idea of both teams opening up on the same night in the same venue. The men are getting ready to take on Merrimack, and I was in the building last year on opening night when UVM played Brown, and Aaron Deloney went off for 32 points, right? It was the best game that AD has ever played, right? That's his career high. He was dominant. He shot well from the outside. He got to the he got to the rack. Obviously, we'd love that kind of performance again tonight. I don't know what exactly is going to happen, but UVM, in my opinion, should beat Merrimack by double figures. Doesn't mean that Merrimack is bad, but I think UVM should win this game by double figures, right? Merrimack won the Northeast Conference a year ago. Now, they couldn't go to the NCAA tournament. Fairleigh Dickinson did. And then, remember, Fairleigh Dickinson ended up beating Purdue in the first round. Merrimack won that league. Couldn't go to the tournament because of the stupid, you know, whatever it is, four- or five-year waiting period once you transition to Division One. But Merrimack has lost a lot from that team, right? They've lost their top three scores from a year ago. The guys that they have coming back averaged, you know, their leaders – from last year who were back averaged seven and a half and six and a half points per game. There's not a lot of experience on this team that is back. UVM has a lot of new faces as well, but Deloney and Matt Verretto, who's certainly a guy who started a bunch of games last year and then was huge in the America East tournament, huge in the final against UMass Lowell. There's experience there for the Cats. And the other guys on the team, 
don't have experience at UVM, but they've played a lot of basketball, right? TJ Long, who's coming in from Fairfield, has played a lot of basketball. It's an all-conference player in the MAC. Shamir Bogues and Brenton Mills. Mills is, you know, I think a fifth-year senior, a guy who's played in this league before at Binghamton and then went on to Bowling Green and Rokemore and even O'Leary Iofalia, who didn't play a ton at UVM in the regular season last year. I think he's got experience because we saw him down the stretch last season. So I think the, the experience factor weighs in UVM's favor. Home court advantage weighs in UVM's favor. Opening night emotion at home weighs in UVM's favor. And I just think UVM wins this game by double figures. The America East is a better conference than the Northeast Conference. So I think UVM by nature is better. UVM walloped Merrimack last year, right? For as bad as UVM looked last year non-conference, they beat Merrimack by 23 points last season, right? Like they beat Merrimack by 23 last year. And that was a UVM team that was reeling in the early going. I think this UVM team is going to be better early on. And this Merrimack team, I don't think right now is going to be as good as it might be at the end of the year. So I think UVM wins this game. The thing that's an interesting note in this game, just something to keep in the back of your mind, is that Merrimack plays a 2-3 zone. And they had, by the way, the nation's highest steal percentage last year. That's fine. That's a fancy term here. But they get their hands in passing lanes. They make you uncomfortable playing that 2-3 zone. UVM is going to have to be able to shoot the ball effectively from the outside. And what did we see against St. Mike's? St. Mike's played a zone in that final exhibition game, and UVM was not very good at it, right? They didn't publish the actual box score from that game, but I listened to a lot of that game on the radio. UVM had a really tough time against St. Mike's zone. If you're going to have a tough time against a D2 zone, I imagine you will also potentially have a tough time with a D1 zone, especially one, even with new players, that has historically been good. Right? Doesn't mean that these guys from Merrimack will play it as well as the guys from last year, but it is something to note that Merrimack plays his own, and UVM has just recently had trouble with his own. And I don't want to get too basketball nerd here, but if you're thinking about it, a 2-3 zone means that Merrimack is going to have two people on top. They're going to have three along the bottom line, along the back line. So it's going to be easier to get shots from the outside because there's only two defenders than on the inside where there are three, right? That sounds simple enough. The way to beat a 2-3 zone is to hit shots from the outside. And while UVM has capable shooters like Deloney and Veretto and sounds like this year, Leary Iofalia and TJ Long, while they have capable shooters, it is opening night. Right, and, and there's always going to be some opening night jitters. There's always going to be some opening night nervousness there where you're going to be a little too amped up. You might shoot it a little too strong. The pass might not be perfect, and then you're going to fumble it a little bit. Like That, that always happens on opening night. It's never perfectly clean. UVM should win this game by double figures, but winning it by double figures means you could win by 10 in which you stretch it out at the end with free throws. It doesn't mean you have to win it by 37. So I think UVM wins. I'm going to say the final score today is 67 to 55. I'm going to say UVM wins by 12. And as for what I want to see, and by the way, remember Hurley on that, you know, Hurley's going to be able to shoot as well. I want to see UVM shoot well from the outside because they're going to be baited into doing so. I want to see UVM hit eight threes in this game. That, uh, that, that's my number. I'm going to see UVM hit eight threes in this game. There will be games this year where they hit 12. There were, last year, we saw plenty of games where they hit three. They've got to shoot well against this team 
against his own. I want to see eight threes tonight. Maybe three from Deloney, two from Verretto, two from Hurley. That would give you seven right there. Can we get one more from Long, Iofalia? I want to see eight threes today. You get eight threes, I feel pretty good about things. I want to see Hurley play well. It's a guy we heard a lot about, right, playing for Team Canada in the offseason, kind of for that junior national team. Had some big games last year, 10 points here, 12 points there. Also had some games where he no-showed. Can you go out and be a guy who now they're going to count on you to be a scorer? Can, can, uh, can, uh, can Hurley put up 10 points? And then, of course, I want to see Iofalia. This is a guy we've talked about. Right, Deloney called him the most improved player he's ever seen from one year to another in college basketball. John Becker essentially said the same to us a couple of weeks ago. Athletic, long, rebounding, defender, block shots, and now has added the offensive side of things. Super athletic, can flush it down in the lane. This is a guy I think we all want to see. So I got UVM winning 67-55. I do not think it will be an artistic masterpiece offensively, but I do think that they will shoot well enough against this zone to go and get the victory. There are a couple of other things here I just want to wrap wrap up on, just kind of a couple of notes. This we're going to talk more about this week. We'll talk more about it with Tom Karen, but just on a Red Sox note here, Justin Turner declined his player option for 2024. So what this means is that Justin Turner is going to be a free agent this offseason. And Turner had a very good year for the Red Sox, right? He hit 276. He had a 345 on base percentage. He had 23 homers. He had 96 RBIs. It was most RBIs he had in a season ever in his career, right? For as good as Turner was was with the Dodgers for years, he never had more RBIs than he had this year when he had 96. 23 homers is the most he had since 2021. So he had an excellent year. He's opted out of his deal. It does not mean that he's done with the Red Sox. It means that Justin Turner at his age, and Justin Turner is 38, about to be 39. He'll turn 39 in eight days or so. He wants a multi-year deal. He knows this is his last chance at a multi-year deal. He had a great year. He wants to capitalize on it. He wants to cash in on it. If the Red Sox want him, they're going to have to pay him. I do not know that. I do not know if they will. Craig Breslow has said, I am willing to pay guys. I am willing to make the tough decisions. We'll see what that means here for Turner. But... I mean, a couple ways to look at this. One, last year the Red Sox finished in last place even with Turner. So with him off the roster, right now, they look worse than they did over the weekend. Right? They look worse because Justin Turner's not there. Um, I would like to have him. If he is back, though, you have kind of a DH backlog. And we've talked about that, right? You want to get Otani. I want to get Otani. Otani can't play the field, and Otani can't throw right now because of his arm. He has to play DH. If Turner is there and Yoshida is there, who also belongs as a DH, you really don't have room for Otani, baseball-wise. If you let Turner go, then you, in theory, have room for Otani. I don't know if he'll come, but you, in theory, have room for him. Are you willing to let Turner walk so you can go after Shohei Otani and maybe get left at the altar? Possibly. Are you willing to let Turner go, move Yoshida to DH full-time, and then kind of free up your outfield log jam that way. That, I think, is the most interesting question. Tristan Casas is your first baseman. So the idea of Justin Turner playing first base regularly, to me, is out. So if Turner's here, he's your DH. That knocks you out from Otani, and that knocks out Yoshida 
playing DH. Are you willing to let Turner go and then move Yoshida to DH full-time and then clear up your outfield issues that way? Because if you are, then I don't know, you know, if you are, that opens up other options for you, right? You could go into an outfield next year with Willie Abreu and Sedan Rafaela and Jaron Duran. You could play all three of them. We've wondered, oh, how are they going to fit everybody? You could play all three, and you could still trade Verdugo. If you're willing to put Yoshida at DH, you don't have to trade Verdugo. I think you should, but if Yoshida's at DH and you want to play with Verdugo in right and Duran in, in center and you want to play with Rafaela in left, or you want to play Abreu in left, you want to put Rafael at second. All these options are there if you're willing to let Turner go. If Justin Turner leaves and the DH spot is open, there's a lot of different things on the table. You're a player for Otani, a realistic one, and you have a chance of putting Yoshida there and clearing up your outfield logjam that way. If Turner is back, that is great for the Red Sox offense, but it also kind of stunts you in a lot of other ways. We'll see what Craig Breslow does. Craig Breslow said, I'm willing to make tough decisions. This is a tough decision. Are you going to pay a 39-year-old? I mean, what does Turner want at this point? Two years and $35 million? Two years and $40 million? Are you willing to pay a 39-year-old $20 million a year? Are you willing to let a guy who had 23 homers and 96 RBIs go? For, go And go for, what, maybe a comp pick? Are you willing to move Yoshida to the DH spot? Are you willing to go after Otani? All these things here are questions now for Craig Breslow. We'll talk more about this over the course of the week. We'll talk more about it with TC coming up on Wednesday. TC, by the way, Wednesday is going to be live at the general manager meetings. The one benefit, I don't love the World Series into November. The one benefit of the later World Series is uh, like we kind of just go right into the offseason. It's like there's no downtime. So the GM meetings begin this week. TC is going to be in Arizona. He's going to be in Phoenix on Wednesday. He's going to be talking to us live, and he will have heard from Breslow, and he will have heard some of the scuttles. So we will see what happens. Other thing I want to mention today, this one is very, very cool. Our own Nick Mumley, right, WDEV racing analyst. You heard him here on Greg Titus with Greg Titus on a lot of calls this year at Thunder Road. He is our guy. He posted yesterday, put this out on social media, that he has won the Pete Hart Media Award for Thunder Road. And he thanked a lot of people. And basically what this award does is kind of recognize what I imagine is people who um, kind of are champions of short track racing, champions at Thunder Road, people who provide great coverage. Um He said that seeing his name etched on the award next to many people he spent his life looking up to is pretty insane. And he was very, very appreciative of it and very, very grateful for the award. I just want to give a a shout out to Nick as well. I want to congratulate him on this award. I think Nick is great. Nick was my former intern at a former station. I take zero credit for his development and for his racing passion. He had that before I ever got a chance to work with him. Uh, I'm happy he's part of our WDEV family. I'm happy he's part of your family at Thunder Road. If you love racing, Nick is the guy for you, right? Find him here on DEV. Find him on his podcast on the Inside Groove, which you can get on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You hear him on this show. He is awesome. He is, look, Thunder Road is a, it's a niche place. It's huge to us, but granted, it is a niche sporting place here within the state of Vermont. Short track stock car racing is a niche sport. 
it, it doesn't make it any less important than anything else, but it it is a niche thing. And Nick puts his heart and soul into it all the time. I want to congratulate him on the Pete Hart Media Award at Thunder Road. That is going to do it for us. We are closing in on Catamount tip-off over at Patrick Jim on the men's side. I cannot wait for it. UVM and Merrimack. The UVM women against uh, Miami of Ohio down to the wire as well. We're going to talk with Emma Utterback coming up tomorrow about how that game finished. We'll get her thoughts on the season opener as the Catamount women will be off and running. She'll be with us at about 6.30. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to everybody on the text line. Glad we were able to kind of get away from the Patriots there at the end because it continues to be very, very frustrating. Pats fall to 2-7. and seven. We'll have more on them tomorrow as well. Thanks to Danny on the other side of the glass. As always, Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. You've been listening to The Brady Farkas Show. Go download the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll see you tomorrow right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com.